Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time again as I welcome you all back to Signals to Danger. My name is Dan Fox, and while some of my spare time is spent chasing a four-year-old around pretending to be a monkey or emptying the dishwasher, I'm still managing to find some time to write this podcast for you wonderful people who keep listening in. And in my not-so-spare time, I do work for a UK train operating company in a surprisingly not safety-based role. As I've said previously, short introductions this time round All it remains for me to say is to thank each of those of you who tune in and also a really big thanks to those who do support the podcast on Patreon. The last little thing to add in there is if you do fancy your hands on some merchandise, we do have merchandise once more. It's through a a company called Spring Um, and to make it simpler, um, I've gone through this provider. It does mean that if you've managed to get some merchandise in the past, you might find it slightly more expensive this time round. That's because of the platform I've had to choose to do it. If I did it the way I used to do it, I'd have to change the way the website worked. I'd have to pay subscriptions to a few different services to actually get it to work the way that it used to do and um, probably realistically sell a lot of merchandise for it to be worth doing that. But if you do fancy um, a hoodie, a T-shirt, a mug, a pint glass or a notebook, um, they are available. The, The link to that is going to be on our social media shortly. But in any case, this is an episode that I knew I was going to do from the day I started this podcast, from literally day one. And now it feels like the time to do that. So without further ado, let's start our visit to Ufton Nervet. set of circumstances that had resulted in catastrophic consequences, not only for those on the 5.30 from Paddington, but also those left behind. A unique set of circumstances that resulted in catastrophic consequences. Ten words that could realistically sum up so many of the accidents that we've covered on Signals, and in fact ten words that we have included already in the opening credits of the show. But in this case, the coroner was using these words to sum up the disastrous consequences of an accident that took place to the north of a sleepy Bedfordshire village called Ufton Nervet, around six miles southwest of Reading. Like so many other locations that we visited over the previous 38, 37 episodes, this is a name I'd likely never know were it not for the part the coordinates played in the events of November the 6th, 2004. Villages like Great Heck. And I chose Great Heck intentionally there. For those of you who've been with us since episode one so long ago, 
or those of you who've played a good game of catch-up, you'll know that Great Heck was the accident which started Signals to Danger Off. Partly because it was the first report I ever read and it got me so interested in the intricacies, the unique set of circumstances, if you will, but also because the timing of the accident that took place there. Between Greyrig in 2007 and Carmont in 2020, the industry enjoyed a really good era of exceptionally safe train travel, driven by vast improvements in processes and systems that were partly brought in as a result of the exact opposite, a period of, well, not great safety performance. I like to consider those 13 years as a golden age of safety for the UK rail network that's the the culmination of every piece of corporate memory, but there is a period before that which I personally think of as the Dark Ages. Around the turn of the millennium, the world was excited, progress was the name of the game and everything was getting brighter and brighter and bigger and better, or so it seemed. I mean, everyone was really worried about some sort of millennium-themed insect, but yeah, generally things were pretty good, except in my humble opinion, on the railway. 1997, 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002 and 2004. Six years spanning the turn of the millennium where the railway did not cover itself in glory. In each one of them, a large-scale accident took place on the UK's rail network, taking the lives of everyday passengers and hard-working staff. Southall in 1997. That was seven dead, 139 injured. Ladbrook Grove in 99, 31 and 417. Hatfield in 2000. Four more dead and more than 70 injuries. 2001, slap bang in the middle of that period, we see Great Heck, 10 dead and seriously injured, 82. 2002, Potter's Bar, 7 dead and 76 injured. And in February of 2004, another accident took place at T-Bay, where four track workers were killed and three others injured on a closed section of railway by a runaway faulty wagon. And that's not to say that there weren't other accidents which took place in that period as well, but this is a terrible showing with essentially almost a major accident on an annual basis. A terrible, terrible example of railway safety across a seven-year period with 63 lives cut short and hundreds others injured by these six incidents alone. And sadly, as we're about to find out, 2004 wasn't finished in adding to this toll. In November, the veil of obscurity fell from the village of Nervet and its name became immortalised in the pages of the nation's newspapers, the words of its radio, and the images of its TV screens. Western Main Line is one of the country's major arterial routes, taking trains and indeed passengers and freight from around the area of Paddington in the nation's capital all the way out to Bristol in the west of the nation, and we've visited before a few times. In fact, there aren't many lines which have escaped this podcast's tarnish by this point, although I must admit there is a really big part of me that kind of wishes I had a little less material to play with. But while Bristol is the destination of the Great Western Main Line, it is not the only place that people want to go to down in the southwest of the UK. Major holiday destinations and cities are also available, and where there is demand, the railway doth follow. The Great Western Main Line, like most of the main lines, is therefore joined and left by many different branch lines along its route, connecting those other destinations to the capital and beyond, which brings us to the town of Reading. Pronounced Reading but spelt Reading isn't English fun to learn, 
Reading can be found 36 miles to the west of London, and is a location where not one but two major branches of the Great Western Main Line diverge. For passengers wishing to connect to South Western Main Line services, or visit Mortimer, Bramley or Basingstoke, they can hop off their train at Reading and then connect onto a service running down the Reading to Basingstoke line. Not very imaginatively named, but the 18-ish mile route is a vital link for those who rely on it. Travelling at a reasonably respectable 75 miles an hour as a maximum speed, the journey between the two stations is about 20 minutes or so on a fast train and 30 on a stopping service. It isn't, however, the only branch which leaves at Reading, and the other is of far more consequence to us here today. The Reading to Taunton line is the one that we're interested in for this episode, and although we're referring to this as a branch line, if you can hear the inverted commas, I think it's important to cast away any assumptions that we might have in our mind. Branch line as a phrase might lead us to picture an idyllic single-track railway gently undulating through the terrain, with a two-car XBRD mew ambling along at a peaceful pace, stopping at what seems like every man in his dog's front door to personally drop them off and nip him for a cup of tea and a chat. That is, not to say that isn't the case in some locations, and actually some of the most beautiful railway journeys in the country end up being like that, but we shouldn't be thinking of this branch in that way. The Reading to Taunton is a fully-fledged railway line in its own right, and I'm not about to cast any aspersions on the views that you can see from the train's window, but this is much more akin to a main line in many respects. The line itself runs from Reading all the way up to Coglow Junction just outside Taunton, where it connects into the Bristol to Exeter main line. This is a big difference from the Basingstoke branch already in the respect that this route is nearly eight times as long, clocking in at about 143 miles. Along the route of the line, passengers are connected to more destinations, places like Aldermaston, Thatcham, Hungerford, Westbury. While there are a number of stations along the route, one of the key users is long-distance, high-speed passenger services between the capital and the Cornish Riviera. And with long-distance in mind, the line allows for higher speed than the Basingstoke does, with permitted speeds rising as high as 110 in places and some of the more complex stations and junctions are bypassed by loops which allow these services to keep up their speeds and carry on their urgent business uninhibited. Nowadays, these services are normally undertaken using Hitachi's Class 8 or 2 buy modes, based on their A-train units. These are capable of operating at 140 miles an hour, but limited to 125 on the UK network. Theoretically, if you do some Googling, you might find there was an unplanned in-service test of a higher speed a couple of years back between York and Darlington. Less said about that, the better, though. These bi-modes are an ideal choice, as some areas of the route between Paddington and Devon and Cornwall are not electrified, and that allows the diesel engines slung under the vehicles to take over from the pantographs sitting on top of them. The operator of these units is Great Western Railway. But that all relates to now, and what we want to do is cast our mind back 19 years. We're not talking about Great Western Railway, the first group-owned train operating company operating under a national rail contract from the Department for Transport. Or, if you like your acronyms, FG's GWR and NRC from the DFT. No, back in 2004, we are firmly in the tenure of an entirely different operator, First Great Western. Well, actually, it might be quite closely connected, Still very much owned by First Group, but operated under the franchise system, which now actually feels quite dated. And We could probably fill half an episode about um, the benefits and negative impacts of franchising and the legacy that that system's left. But one thing that was actually very different, um, as opposed to the, the way the company's built up, but very different was the rolling stock used by Great Western in 2004. 802s are a relatively new addition to the UK's rail network, um, only meeting our rails back in 2018, so we definitely need to ask what traction would have been coasting up and down the line at this point, carrying long-distance passengers at high speed. And the answer is probably not going to come as much of a surprise to any of you, because of my use of the words high and speed. First Great, West, First Great Western were operating a well-known racehorse of the railway, the high-speed train, also known as an Intercity 125, and the train we're going to be discussing today is indeed one of their fleet of HSTs, specifically a 10-car formation made up of eight Mark III coaches with a Class 43 locomotive on either end. I think we've probably gone through a potted history of the HST before, but if you haven't heard those episodes, or maybe I haven't somehow, 
despite the fact they have shown up a couple of times. The HST was originally created as a stopgap, developed through the 70s to bridge the gap caused by the spiralling costs of British Rail's APT, the Advanced Passenger Train. Now the HST is actually now considered to be one of the most successful trains to ever rock the rails of the UK, with pretty much all of them surviving the transition from BR to the privatised railway. In fact, many routes where HSTs are prolific have only just, in the last few years, operated their final services, and that has been to a fond farewell in almost every single case, with farewell tours and people flocking to wave off and welcome in the final services. But change must take place, and the network is currently in the process of reducing the average age of stock in the UK by quite a pace, to well below the age that it has been in the past. And A2X stock and other fleets are stepping in to fill the space in depot sheds and sidings that the HSTs are vacating. It's probably worth mentioning here what puts the high speed in high speed train. The class 43 locomotive, it's streamlined and it's powerful, looks somewhat drastically different from many of the locos that came before it. The 43 is sleek and it looks like the end of a modern multiple unit more than the the locomotives that were pulling passenger trains around before it turned up. Make no mistake though, despite the aesthetic, they are fully fledged locals with two and a half thousand horsepower at their disposal. And each of the train sets is topped and tailed by two of them. This is power which enables 125 mile an hour running, connectivity and comfort, which formed the backbone of long distance passenger service in the UK for many decades. And one station where you could see many of these trains from the late 70s till as recently as last year was London's Paddington, where this story starts. This headcode is the name that the railway would come to know our train by on the 6th of November 2004, and the combination of numbers and letters which would find itself plastered all over the shift logs of First Great Western, Network Rail, the British Transport Police before the day was over. For the rest of the world it was the 1735 First Great Western service from Paddington to Plymouth. Had this been a weekday, this would be a prime time service for those heading back out of the capital to Reading and beyond, packed with city workers in their briefcases headed home for bedtimes and evening meals. But this was a Saturday, and the crowd was a little different as you'd expect. People who travelled into London to experience its thrills and delights, and not just its high pay packets and expensive coffee. This was a train that was being loaded with people such as 14-year-old Emily Webster, a student at the Maynard School for Girls in Exeter. She journeyed in with a friend and a father to see what the capital had on offer. Also boarding the train were people like 72-year-old Warminster native Leslie Charles Matthew and 55-year-old Barry Strevens, who lived in Wells in Somerset. All perfectly normal people making perfectly normal journeys after a perfectly nice day. Joining the ranks of people walking up to the train was one man who walked past the doors of every single carriage and continued up to the leading vehicle. Stanley Martin, 54 years of age, and a native of Torquay. Martin was the driver of the train this evening, and he got set up in the cab ready to depart with no issues of note. The cab at the lead end of the train where Stanley had just boarded was that of 43019 or 43019, as we probably should pronounce it, and this locomotive had a name of its own as well, City of Swansea, or in the Welsh, which I'm terrified I'm going to butcher, Dinas Abertowe. And it was from this cab, as the clock ticked up to the departure time, 1735, 
that Martin eased off the brakes, putting the power and diligently drew his train out of the platform, starting the long journey home for all of the passengers sat in the carriages behind him, as well as his three colleagues, two train managers and a customer host. The journey started out uneventfully, the train negotiating its first 35 miles to Reading in about 25 minutes. The train was joined here by other passengers, such as 38-year-old Anna Jeanette Rossi and her nine-year-old daughter Luella. They'd travelled into Reading to do some shopping and spend some quality time together. Perfect activity for a mother and daughter sharing quality time. With station duties complete, the train departed a minute later. At 18.03, slightly behind schedule, heading out on the line towards Taunton. As the permitted speed allowed, Martin eased the train, the train up to just below the line speed of 100 miles an hour. At 11 minutes past six in the evening, one Charlie 92 reached a critical point on its journey, the point where line-side equipment detected the presence of his train and triggered lights and barriers at Ufton level crossing 1,700 metres further down the line. At 100 mile an hour, this was a distance that the train would cover in just under 40 seconds. And at this point, to tell our story properly, we need to step away from the rapid progress of Charlie 92 and talk about another individual, Brian Drysdale. 48-year-old Brian Drysdale was a chef at the Walkfield Park Conference Centre a short distance away from Ufton, where he had worked for around 15 months. A quiet individual, colleagues later told reporters that he was a strange sort of chap, you could hardly get a word out of him. It took him ages before he would even say hello to me. Brian had lived in a number of different rental properties around Reading for the last few years, but currently was resident in a terraced property in East Reading, about 20 minutes drive from the crossing at Ufton. And while many people can be quiet, it later transpired that not everything was right in Brian's life. A former colleague in the years after the accident told stories of how he'd been a habitual drug user at times in his life, regularly smoking marijuana, taking cocaine and ecstasy to calm down. It also later was revealed that he'd been homosexual, but that he had hidden this fact from his friends and his family, and that in recent years his love life wasn't going particularly well. Friends later said that Mr Drysdale was grief-stricken over a failed relationship with a man, but had had brief fling with a woman said to have had no idea that he was gay. And one in particular said, Brian must have been deranged. He was tortured over his personal life. He could be quite dramatic. It wouldn't take much for him to snap. He said he had started having feelings for women and this could have pushed him over the edge. In fact, there were signs that Brian Drysdale wasn't in a good place in the run-up to the sixth. He'd made numerous calls to the health advice line NHS Direct raising his concern that he believed he might have contracted HIV and also described feeling his head cracking and said, I think I'm having a bit of a nervous breakdown. He also said that he was having suicidal thoughts. And all of this culminated in the events of the evening of the 6th of November. After a few hours of being at work, Brian told his colleagues he was feeling unwell and at about 17.30 he got into his car, a silver Mazda 323, and drove away from Walkfield Park. Where he was going, his colleagues couldn't say for sure, but they assumed he was heading home to East Reading. But it wouldn't be long before his car was found. Approaching ten past six that evening, Drysdale's car was happened upon by an off-duty police officer from the Thames Valley Police. By this point, the front of the car was across the track at Ufton Level Crossing, with the driver's seat in line with the centre of one of the tracks. Clearly, this wasn't a safe place for the vehicle to be and so the officer flashed his lights and sounded his horn to warn the other driver to get his attention, but he was ignored. The clock ticked over to 18.11. The lights and the warning horns of the crossing activated, piercing the quiet blackness of the surrounding countryside. The officer ran to the emergency phone at the crossing to try and raise the alarm to try and prevent what was about to happen. And Brian Drysdale sat on the crossing in the path of a rapidly approaching train. Drysdale did nothing. Mm-hmm. 
39 seconds is no time at all. Just less than two thirds of a minute. Enough to pour a glass of water, but not to boil a kettle. Not long enough to make a slice of toast. Barely enough time to realise that the person who called you is trying to sell something, and certainly not long enough to get them to leave you alone. 39 seconds is no time at all. But it was long enough for one Charlie 92 to travel the nearly two kilometres between the striking in point where the level crossing was activated and the crossing itself at Ufton Nervert. And on board, nobody was any the wiser as to the danger which loomed ahead of them. Since leaving Reading and heading out into the countryside of a dark winter evening, this left them with little to look at, and this effect was shared by Stanley Martin at the head of the train. The train's headlights illuminated what track ahead of them that they could, and he watched ahead of himself diligently for signals or any other issues that might arrive. The power lever which had been in notch 5 since the speed limit increased was notched down to notch 3 gently, one notch at a time as the train reached 96 miles an hour. On the approach to the crossing itself, Martin brought the power handle to the off position. He was doing 98 miles an hour, he didn't need any more power. But then the crossing loomed out from the darkness, and with it came a terrifying sight. Drysdale's silver Mazda 323 parked across the running line which Martin and his passengers were traversing at around 100 miles an hour, with its bonnet aligned with the down line that the train was on. Martin brought the brake controller straight into the emergency position, but this was almost a futile exercise. Around a second after that, the inevitable happened and the train collided violently with the car. The off-duty police officer stood at the crossing, mere seconds after he'd picked up the emergency phone to try and contact the signal and raise the alarm, he was confronted by this almighty impact in front of him. And he found himself deeply shocked by what had taken place. He knew the car was occupied and would have been fairly confident of the outcome, which would have met the man who'd sat within it. Although he didn't know yet what it meant, he later recalled how he'd seen a shower of deep red sparks in the distance after the red rear lights of the train had disappeared into the darkness. He called the control room of Thames Valley Police using 999, identified himself as an off-duty officer and managed to recount what he'd seen. While still on the line, he retrieved a small torch from his car and began the unenviable task of trying to see what had become of the car and its driver. Using this torch, he was able to see that it was what he expected. The wreckage of the car was a short distance from the crossing in the cess, that area next to the track, adjacent to the side of the down line. Along with the wreckage, he also saw the body of the car driver. Unpleasant, but probably not unexpected. All of this information he recounted to the operator at the police control room. And at this point, neither he, probably nor anyone he was liaising with, expected this to be anything more serious than the tragic death of one individual at a level crossing, although this understanding was about to change significantly. Because this was the point that he noticed something else. In the darkness, the direction the train had disappeared into, he was able to start discerning the movements of small lights, several of them moving around in the darkness. A local had also arrived at the level crossing by this point and the officer was able to borrow a more powerful torch from them and that enabled him to move along the grass to the edge of the track and investigate these lights. I can only imagine at this point how the shock of what he'd just seen was gradually turning into horror. As the further along the track he went, the clearer it would have become that this was far more of a disaster than anyone had initially noticed. Still on the phone to the emergency services, still talking to the control room, he reported what the scene in front of him now made clear. This was a major incident, with multiple carriages of a train derailed and numerous casualties. It was inevitably clear that following the point the car was hit, the train had been drastically affected and derailed violently. So what did happen in the immediate seconds following the collision on the crossing? The impact with the car had derailed the leading wheel set on the first bogey of the power car, just to the left of the rails, and immediately following the crossing, the right-hand wheel had partly run across the pandrel clips holding the rails to the sleepers, 
but this derailment continued to the point where about 11 metres past the crossing, the wheels started running along the sleepers themselves. Now at this point, the wheels were only about 220 millimetres away, and I'll put that in centimetres, that's 2.2 centimetres away from the face of the rail. And they continued to run this way for the next 80 metres, only straying as far adrift as 275 millimetres. Now that deviation, being so slight and slowly progressing, means that the likelihood is on straight track, it would be relatively safe. As the train slowed under the emergency braking from all the other wheels still on the track, and actually the additional slowing you'd get from running across the sleepers, the train would eventually come to a stand. Upright, in line, with only the leading wheel set derailed. But that doesn't take into account another piece of infrastructure in this area. The down goods loop. Running alongside the line adjacent to the down where the express was travelling was another loop of track and this could be accessed by a set of facing points around 90 metres further up the line. Facing points, as we've discussed before, are the ones where tracks diverge, where one track splits into two. And the down goods loop did indeed divert to the left from the down line. And much in the same way as the turnout at Plasmore Sidings did at Great Heck a few years earlier, the points leading into the down goods loop drastically changed the course of the collision at Ufton Nervet. As the train ran down the line to the goods loop, the leading right-hand wheel collided with the detector bar and brackets at the switch tours, that's the very end of the point blades. The right-hand wheels were then directed to the left of the blade, and the marks showed us that the left-hand wheels were also further diverted by the left-hand switchblade. This divergence triggered what made often a notable and deadly accident, started the total and catastrophic derailment of the train. The railway line forming both the down goods loop and down line were essentially destroyed by the accident, leaving very little to actually assess following the incident, but those investigating the accident were later able to estimate the behaviour of the train beyond this point and it was violent and terrifying and probably made all the more so due to the dark surrounding the accident. Significant longitudinal loading was present within the crashing train at this point, the momentum of the train pushing against the rapidly slowing leading vehicles as they destroyed the tracks and began to produce considerable ploughing of the ballast as the train's bogies began to dig into that oversized gravel. The power car leading the train had its bogies tethered to the vehicle itself. It's a system known as bogie retention, but this wasn't a feature enjoyed by the passenger carriages. The vehicle immediately behind the power car, Coach H, was one of the first to lose its bogies, and Coach G immediately behind it soon followed suit, sliding along the ballast on the underfloor equipment. At some point shortly after this, the power car and Coach Hitch tipped onto their left-hand side and slid along on that side for some considerable distance. They eventually came to rest, still coupled together, with the power car and Coach H on their sides, and Coach G more or less upright behind them. As the front of the train slowed, and that longitudinal loading increased, the coaches behind it started to move out of alignment, in almost a concertina effect. As the yaw loading increased between those vehicles, that side-to-side the rotational loading, the couplers connecting them began to fail. Likely, the first one to break was the one that connected coaches F and E, and shortly after, the one between F and G. E began to slide past coach F, overtaking it, but then F collided with one of the bogies that coach G had dropped, and this was a truly disastrous factor in the incident. The heavy steel bogey scored the body side of the coach before embedding itself into the side of the vehicle. This significantly reduced the strength of the steel tube which the carriage was essentially formed of, and when the leading end embedded itself in an earth embankment next to the track, the, more, the momentum and the inertia of that rear end, rear end caused it to bend around the bogey, folding the carriage almost in half. E and D, the carriage behind it, remained coupled initially, though Coach D had rolled onto its side, sliding along the track with its roof leading, although this only lasted until the roof of Coach D collided with another detached bogey. That impact collapsed the roof and the body side of the carriage and flipped it a further 240 degrees 
and spun it clockwise. And this rapid deceleration of Coach D as it collided with the bogey was the last piece of force needed to sever the connection to Coach E, which slid on down the ballast without it, turning onto its side and sliding until it came to a rest close to the point reached by the overturned power car. The last three carriages of the train had a somewhat less violent experience, all remaining in line and coupled together, as well as coupled to the rear power car. These four vehicles, though, were between 10 and 45 degrees tilted, but hadn't been tossed, crumpled, scored or bent in the same way as those in the front half of the train. This entire crash only lasted a matter of seconds, but they were terrifying ones and those who came to the rescue of passengers in the darkness were just about to find out what horrors had unfolded. As the dust settled, the business of rescue started, and an urgent need to understand if anyone was hurt amongst the wreckage of the train, although it would have been reasonable to assume that this was the case. An important duty of rail staff in the midst of an accident is to provide assistance to passengers, make the area safe by stopping other trains, as well as making sure the emergency services have been called, and that often this duty was more important than ever, but not all four of the staff on board would be able to offer this assistance. Sadly, at this point, I have to share one of several details about Ufton, which I'm going to find difficult to recount. And I warn you, even though I've always taken the angle that people know what they're getting into with this podcast, I would actually, in this instance, caution listeners too. Some of you might actually find aspects of this section difficult to hear. At some point in the crash, damage was caused to the leading left side pillar of the train's cab, and this structural failure occurred where the left-hand cab door was attached. In the accident, the door was removed from the train, and as it slid along the ground, large quantities of ballast and debris was scooped into the hole left by the absence of the door. It was this terrifying ingress of debris which caused the death of one of Ufton's victims, driver Stanley Martin. Truly, truly dreadful, and I'll admit it's almost easier to talk about it in that almost clinical style seen in the reports, the ingress of debris. It has to be said though, this accident brought more horrors however, and among the train there were other horrific experiences that had taken place. But without Martin, it fell to the other members of train crew to look after the passengers on board until the rescue had arrived, and One of the two train managers began to almost immediately do that. He'd been travelling on the third coach from the rear of the train, and once the train had stopped moving, he removed light sticks, essentially glow sticks, from their locations on the train's walls and started distributing them to passengers as he moved back through the train towards the rear cab, doing his best to reassure as he made slow progress through those tilting carriages. When he finally got to his office at the rear end of the last coach, he donned a high-vis vest, picked up a hand lamp and some track circuit operating clips. He then climbed through a window of the coach, which was tilting 45 degrees and ballast blocked the door, and he walked to the rear of the train, past the power car and placed a track circuit operating clip on the line. The other train manager had been in the second coach of the train at the time of the incident, and he'd been thrown in the collision, but once the train had stopped moving and he got back to his feet, he activated the light stick in their compartments and asked the passengers to remain seated. He alighted the coach by one of the doors and walked to the nearby signal to contact the signaller. The line was dead. The cabling had been damaged in the course of the derailment, so he instead called Swindon Control from his mobile phone to inform them of the accident. He then made his way to the rear of the train and met up with the other train manager, and shortly after they both began to witness the emergency services arriving on the scene. In Kochi, on its side, 
another passenger was trying to take stock of what had taken place. A few moments earlier, he'd been travelling on one side of a table, with his daughter and a friend sat opposite him. The next, there was heavy braking, loud bangs, and then the lights went out. Noise and sparks followed as the carriage rolled over onto its right-hand side. And once the motion had ended, he heard his fellow passengers begin to cry out, and people started to use their mobile phones for light. He looked for his daughter and her friend, and soon realised that as the train had rolled over, the window had broken and the unthinkable had happened. He found both girls. As the carriage had rolled over, they'd exited the window and were trapped between the side of the train and the ballast. His daughter had not survived the ordeal and her friend was seriously injured. It took the emergency services between 90 and 120 minutes to rescue the injured girl using airbags to lift the carriage and a further hour to release the body of the passenger's daughter. Once this took place, the passenger remained with her body at the line side till it was transported to a temporary mortuary on site and then on to hospital. This wasn't the only fatality which occurred in this coach, as further along another passenger, a male this time, had been killed as he partially fell through an open window. And as other passengers exited the train's wreckage, they came across people who'd been ejected from the train during the crash, including 38-year-old Anjanette Rossi and her nine-year-old daughter Luella Main. Anjanette was gone, when they happened upon her, but Luella had a weak pulse. The two passengers who had found them stayed with her for a while, trying to keep her going, but she unfortunately succumbed to her injuries too. Then they found a clergyman who'd been a passenger on the train and asked him to say a prayer for the couple. The emergency services had descended on often rapidly and in force. BTP attended with 60 officers, Thames Valley Police 120. The fire services brought 22 appliances and 84 crew members. And they were all joined by 13 doctors, 23 paramedics, 25 ambulances with 50 crew members. And within half an hour, the first contingents of every service were on the scene. But even this swift and comprehensive attendance couldn't save the lives of seven people. Anjanette Rossi, Luella Main, Barry Strevens, Charlie Matthews, Emily Webster and Stanley Martin. They all lost their lives on the train and Brian Drysdale had been killed in the collision on the crossing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ufton Nervet was a terrible accident, and all the stories I've just shared are prime examples of why this is so. But it did gift us something that not every train crash does, a really clear reason as to why it took place. 
delivered up front and for everyone to see. Brian Drysdale caused the accident by choosing to end his life on the railway. And unfortunately it is the truth that many people do choose to leave this life using the railway in this way. In the year 2020-2021, for example, there were 253 suicide fatalities on the railway and working for the industry. I've been closer than I would generally care to to a few of these successful attempts and been involved when people have turned up at the station with these things in mind. The defining feature in this case, however, is that Brian elected not just to place himself in front of the 1535 from Paddington, but that he also chose to place his car there too. This was the difference between Brian being successful in his tragic endeavour and the fact that he also took six other people with him who had no say in the matter. Now, even though one of the key questions about the accident were answered, there remained some other more important ones to answer. First and foremost, why had the collision with Drysdale's car been so effective in derailing the train? Generally speaking, collisions between trains and cars can happen without these catastrophic results. Cars generally... Well, they weigh in the 1-2 to tonnes range, and trains are significantly heavier, carrying with them the momentum of the speed that they're travelling at. Investigators descending on the scene were left with the unenviable task of understanding how a little Mazda 323 unleashed this level of havoc. The way that objects on the line derail trains is generally between getting with between the rails and the wheel itself. When this happens, and the flange of the wheel is lifted clear, the train is able to move beyond the confines of the track. Now this lifting doesn't need to be overly significant either, with the flanges only 15 to 20 millimetres deep. The fact is though, you're still talking about the need to lift something of a significant weight at that distance. So what specifically could have lifted the train off the track at Ufton? The answer to this question lies with the interaction between two specific parts of both Drysdale's car and the train itself. The reconstruction that BTP carried out and the wreckage left of the Mazda demonstrated how Drysdale had parked on the crossing, and more importantly what part of his car was slap banging between the running rails. The bonnet. Cars are generally quite lightweight body panels on a sturdy frame, and under the force of a severe collision it, they rip, they tear, they bend, they break. But there are one or two components on a train which are made in a very different way. Big solid blocks of cast metal designed to encase exploding fuel several times a second, as well as fast-moving, heavy metal components. The engine block. This is a much more solid component, one which Drysdale had unwittingly placed, well, in the direct path of some other components on the train itself. When the front of the train collided with the car, the front of the car was pushed down by the front of the train. The engine block and some other heavy components ended up pushed underneath the leading end of the train. The engine block is a heavy solid component of a car and on the leading axle of the train you could find a similar component, heavy, solid, the gearbox or the gear case on the actual axle itself. The final component of this jigsaw is the fact that the collision took place on a level crossing. This means that there was a significantly reduced clearance between the gear case and the ground below it as the road level was higher than the sleepers would have been. And the size of the largest part of the Mazda's engine that was found by investigators was easily sufficient to have become lodged in between the gear case on the train and that road deck, and to provide a lifting force of about 30 tonnes at that speed. This, this was the impact which caused the actual derailment which in the true spirit of this podcast leads us to act. How does the railway protect itself from the risk of things lifting the train off the wheel? So there are a couple of features that we've discussed before. The obstacle deflector and the lifeguard. And no, that second one is still not the guy in red stood by the side of the pool. Obstacle deflectors, obstacle deflectors, not defectors, First of all, are colloquially known as cowcatchers, and they're either a vertical or a concave face fitted at the front of a train and arranged in a slight V-shape to deflect obstacles away from the wheels behind it. Lifeguards are a little different. These are vertical metal struts that are mounted in pairs, one in front of each of the leading wheels, and they're designed to deflect smaller items from getting underneath the wheels themselves. 
So how did these structures play their part in deflecting debris from the car at Ufton? The easiest ask is to explain the obstacle deflector. Well, there wasn't one. At the time HSTs were built, well, it wasn't a requirement in the design requirement document for UK rail vehicles. In a way, this is one of the downsides of the way that design standards work. This particular one, GMRT2100, or Structural Requirements for Railway Vehicles, is regularly updated. All vehicles introduced onto the railway must meet with these requirements in order to be allowed to operate, but only at the time they're introduced. When the standards are updated with new safety innovations, there is no imposition upon operators to retrospectively change their vehicles to meet the new standards. It's a principle that's sometimes known as grandfathering. So this does mean that the longer rolling stock is in place on the network, the more iterations of GMRT2100 that they've lived through, and the greater the gulf between old stock and the newest in terms of crashworthiness. In fact, we've seen in several of our reports over the years that the more modern rolling stock might have performed better in the accident. In the case of Ufton, however, with specificity to obstacle deflectors, retrospective meeting of the standards wouldn't necessarily have changed much. The actual weight of a class 43 means that it wouldn't have required them fitting and therefore might not have had such a feature installed. But if it had been the proud owner of an obstacle deflector, it might well have changed the course of events. And there is a possibility that it might have been able to sweep the engine block along without allowing it under the wheel set. And on the subject of lifeguards, well, although they were fitted, they were only designed to protect the wheels themselves and the engine block was in the space between them. They just weren't in the place they would have needed to have been to prevent the accident from occurring. So now we know what caused the accident. It's time to broach another question. Knowing that the engine lodging under the gear case made the development inevitable, did it need to be as catastrophic? There are three things that went wrong at Ufton which all contributed to the lethality of the incident, and these all kind of feed into one another. The first we'll look at is the performance of the couplings between the carriages. A derailed train is safest for passengers when they remain upright and in line and not entirely safe. But without rolling, passengers are only subjected to those most extreme forces longitudinally or along the axis of the carriage. It still produces injuries, don't get me wrong, it's no fun being thrown against the seat or table in front of you and this probably applies especially if some fishes and fittings become detached and impact into passengers. But modern couplings between trains, they're designed around this concept. They're designed to be rigid and prevent lateral and vertical movement resulting in their separation. They work in conjunction with override protection on the vehicle ends to lock the vehicles of the train in together and keep the train moving forwards as one unit as it slows down. And we've discussed override protection before as well. That's those corrugated looking attachments on vehicle ends with grooves. When those vehicles are brought together by a collision, they lock into each other and prevent one climbing over the other. And it's not only the override protection which locks those vehicles together too, though. The actual couplers that we use nowadays also contribute to this process. In between the vehicles of a multiple unit, we tend to see semi-permanent couplers with those vehicles physically bolted together and shock absorption built into the points where they're mounted to the vehicles themselves. And they can be separated if the company needed to detach them, it's generally done in a depot, though, and not, say, in a station. It's not so much of an issue because those multiple units generally operate in fixed formations. But what about where we need to uncouple and couple up, so the ends of units when you're putting them together to operate in multiple? Well, there are several really good designs out there now which provide protection in every direction. Systems such as the Scharfenberg or the Delner couplers. So with those things on the market now, what do we have available and fitted on the HST at Ufton? Well, we've discussed them before and we covered Carmont. 
And in fact, I'm going to be a little bit lazy and I'm just going to describe them in exactly the same way by lifting it straight from that report. HST sets, HST sets are fitted with what's called an alliance coupler. It's a type of knuckle coupler where the two sets of two sides of the coupler hold on to one another as if they're two hands linked together with bent fingers. This is a dated design and there are some similar ones that are still in use around the world, quite prominently over in America in freight. And it must be said that, just like in Carmont, the Alliance couplers fitted to the HST were not able to withstand forces exerted in the crash, with many of them breaking, allowing the vehicles to separate and then yaw separately to, to turn, to spin, to move in all three axes, unrestricted by the other vehicles around them. Which lifts us on to our second factor, bogies. In terms of keeping vehicles upright and in line, keeping bogies attached to the vehicles is quite important. It's a nice heavy component at the bottom, lowering the centre of gravity, stabilising the train. Keeping them attached is important and that concept is known as bogie retention. More importantly, bogies can dig into ballast and earth and slow the train, whereas the flat body sides of a vehicle, they tend to have a tendency to slide and roll along rails with less friction and controllability. There are a few ways that we can ensure buggy retention on an accident vehicle. Might be secondary retention straps which connect them to the vehicle or a mechanism in the mounting pin which prevents the vehicle from being lifted clear of the buggy. In modern stock, buggy retention is designed into vehicles by means of a design load case for body to buggy connections, been mandated by relevant standards since around 1988. So buggies should remain attached to vehicle bodies as far as practicable in derailments and collisions. So was there any bogey retention at Ufton? No, and again, this is an issue that we saw at Carmont nearly two decades later. The lack of vertical bogey retention is very important because not only were vehicles lifted off their bogies in both accidents, it's to do with what the bogies become once they're no longer attached to a train. Large, heavy obstacles. They're incredibly heavy constructions, carrying heavy wheel sets cast out of metal, and when they're laid stationary in the ballast and a fast-moving carriage with comparatively thin and lightweight construction collides with them, the carriage inevitably comes off worse. This is the fate which befell Coach F often with significant damage reducing the structural integrity of the body side, allowing the coach to fold in on itself. It's so important to try and keep bogies attached to trains not only to aid with that upright and in-line principle, but also to prevent them from becoming lethal obstacles. But when all of this fails, and the train does break up, and the carriages start to slide on their sides, Ufton had one more horror in store, and it was directly the cause of several of the fatalities. The performance of the windows. When we look at windows of a train, we find that there's another railway standard that comes into play, it's a, another catchy name, it's GMRT2456, or to use the more meaningful name, Structural Requirements for Windows and Windscreens on Railway Vehicles. Under this standard, unless a window is designed to be used for evacuations, it must have at least one pane of laminated glass. This protects passengers from the effects of impacts to the windows, so objects thrown, other vehicles colliding, or significantly here, impacts with the ground and ballast when a carriage rolls onto its side. And you can probably guess what I'm going to tell you. HSTs predated that standard. Their passenger windows were all made of toughened glass, which breaks into theoretically non-aggressive pieces when shattered. And the result of this is that two, and perhaps as many as four of the fatalities often were the result of passengers being ejected through broken windows of the train. We also know that others received injuries due to limbs being trapped between the coaches and the tracks, and being cut by broken glass. We know ballast entered into the vehicle bodies and although the report couldn't say for sure that that was a cause of injuries, I'd be surprised if none of them were caused by the rocks flying around inside the carriage. Had the windows of this train been laminated, in line with how the standards dictated at the time of the accident, even those assessing the incident could see that the number and severity of injuries would have been reduced. The report into often highlighted several ways more modern stock would have performed better. But let's not forget what I said earlier on. This, this right now, where we're living in, this is the era where HSTs are starting to leave the network.
these trains are still in service, including on ScotRail. And I also mentioned earlier, many of the things I've said in today's episode, we also said while we were discussing Carmont. brings us to the end of today's episode and I need to wrap up what I think about often nervous. Like I said earlier on this is always an episode I was going to write. There's many things about this accident which are fascinating but also truly truly tragic. It's a fine example of how one piece of infrastructure can entirely change the course of an accident and also how updated design well it just can't stack up to the current state of play. But most importantly, it tells us that when people choose to end their lives on the railway, they're, well, they're rarely the only casualty. This is an extreme example, but we also know that every time someone else ends up under a train, others are invariably weaved into the thread of that incident. Drivers, conductors, passengers, other railway staff who attend or are involved, BTP, or the other emergency services, they're always affected by their involvement but they have no choice other than to become entangled in that story. So I suppose my closing thoughts with these episodes is firstly to say that I do hope you haven't been affected by it or any of the things that we've discussed. They have been hard to write, and I'm sure for some they've been hard to hear. But that kind of leads me on to how I'm going to wrap this episode up, and it's a little bit different to normal. More than anything you could take away from today's episode just take this if you ever find yourself warding off dark thoughts reach out to someone to friends to family to the samaritans to a local support network to a charity to somebody no matter how trapped or unloved or uncared you might feel there is always somebody to listen don't make a decision that you won't get a chance to regret just reach out joining us for yet another episode of signals to danger as i've said in the past please feel free to like share review come interact with me on social media look for signals to danger or daniel fox rail don't forget like i said we've got some merchandise on sale the links on our socials and if you are interested in the patreon just feel free to track that down but finally until next episode travel safe (laughs) 